So where does that come from? It came from trauma. And then it came from a place of turning trauma into power. And the day I turned trauma into power, I was unstoppable. You're listening to the Building a Coaching Culture podcast. If you need to compete and win in the 21st century labor market as an employer of choice, this podcast is for you. Each week, we share leadership development, coaching, and culture development insights from leading experts who are developing world-class cultures in their own organizations. And now, here's your host, J.R. Flatter. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is J.R. Flatter. I'm here with my partner, Lucas. Hello. And our distinguished guest this afternoon is Mr. Todd Simmons. I'll let you introduce yourself because you'd do it much better than I, but before we get started, I'd just remind everybody what we're doing here and what we're uh, focusing on. This is about building a coaching culture, which I know, Todd, you're infinitely familiar with and you're going to be an amazing guest. Our intended listeners are leaders of complex organizations who are competing in the hyper-competitive 21st century market, probably got sky-high recruiting costs, high attrition, trying to attack and retain the world-class talent that everybody else is. And so how do you do that? I think you have some great insights into that, Todd. So it's really focused on leadership development, coaching accreditation, RBLP, which love for you to talk at length about. And, and you'll brag a little bit about what you're out there doing because you're doing amazing stuff. And finally, culture development. So how does one build a world-class culture? And Lucas is our millennial co-host, and so he'll jump in here as, as intergenerational issues come up, or he's a computer scientist too, so a lot of IT stuff. I'll pass the torch over to you, Todd, and and first and foremost, just tell us a little bit about the great stuff you're doing what is resiliency building leadership all about and anything else that comes to mind? For the guests out there, I'm Todd Simmons, I'm the Chief Vision Officer for Courageous Leadership Alliance. We are based up here in the D.C. area, in the DMV area. What we really focus on is building organizational culture. And we started about two years ago when I retired from the United States Air Force at 25 years, seven months, 14 days and 90 minutes. And I never counted... <laughs> Never counted a second of my time in the military, enjoyed every second of it. But when it came into the conversation we're talking about now, culture and building those organizations that matter. My last three years in the Air Force, I was the senior enlisted leader for Air Force education. So senior enlisted leader for Air University. So, man, what an eye-opening opportunity to go around to 1,300 locations that I never got to and um, just be a part of the fabric of developing leaders. From, you know, junior enlisted airmen at 19-year-old, you know, Gen Xers to all the way up to our senior scientists and civilians all across the spectrum. So really started getting into how do you build organizations? What is culture? What does psychological safety mean from an organizational standpoint, from an innovation standpoint? What is, what, is, what is true innovation without culture? It really, really uh, fascinated me. So when I retired... I kind of transitioned from being a motivational kind of resiliency speaker, which was really the lane that I was in, into really doing a lot more purposeful work and um, how to build the foundation, building blocks of an organization. And, and that's where I met with the leadership at RBLP, Resilience Building Leader Program, which is a company based out of California. And they had a, a really a four or five year old certification that was built on 29 leader tasks from the creator of the certification, Dr. Gene Cogman, who was a former Marine. 
And I really kind of jumped into it because I could recognize where he was going. You know, a lot of time in the military and even organizations, we talk about resilience in an individual way. We talk about resilience from those pillars of how do we take care of ourselves, which is a great way to review resilience, that self-care, the pillars of, of being a resilient leader, having grit, all of those things. But what RBLP was talking about is collective resiliency. How do you take all of these tools and give a leader all of these tools to build everything from cohesion in your teams all the way to a learning organization, to an organization that can think, all the way down to leaders who understand what true delegation and creating their their, uh, organizations that can thrive with and without you, all the way down to what is culture, truly the fabric of your organization versus the climate of your organization. So I kind of fell in love with it. It had a, a flair of what kind of my background was being security forces in the Air Force for 20 years and working with multi-services, and, and I just felt, felt. So we started being a, the first authorized training partner back in August of, of last year. We became authorized training partner as a, a beta test to split the certification from training to certification. And since then, we've really kind of mapped out the blueprint for 25 authorized training partners to come behind us. We maintain being the largest authorized training partner. And even beyond RBLP, I got to brag on my own company. You know, we, we do... We do a lot more than that. That's one of our lanes, but you know, we are we are happy to have discovered the, the beauty of coaching with Flatter. I know, you know, I've been coaching prior to pursuing a certification, which I, which I'm doing through the Flatter uh, certification process. And I and I tell you, you know, about five of my other folks have been going through certification processes, and and just that this just even though I've been in I think in a coaching environment for years, and it's been my leadership style, sharpening my tools and the fundamentals of of how do I really ask a question and really get out of my own head and and stop stacking questions? All these things I've learned over the last couple of months has really helped us really uh, deepen our bench and and coaching, deepen our bench and folks who are adding a lot of value to people's lives across the sector. So that, and we do a lot of continuing education for different companies and and, and different military organizations specializing in one to four day workshops, all culture-based. So really excited to, that I got a about four minute ad to talk about all the great things that we're doing. <laughs> but I, I am so excited to I know you know to be on this platform to be a part of of what what this what this organization what we are all doing in this space. It's been exciting the last two years to see all of the people who are actually chasing their passion mm-hmm. um, and and actually taking a step back and going you know I only got one life to live. How am I going to live it? How am I going to do it based on, you know, this time that I have? And it's, it's been a journey for me. It's been a journey for my team. And, and I'm, I'm not happy to be here. No, we're so happy to have you. So a couple of thoughts. One, you don't bring a military style. You bring leadership. You bring culture. And I've seen it in real time. The, the people that you're engaged with are global, military, commercial, not-for-profit, mm-hmm. So if anybody's listening and wants to reach out and get what some of Todd has, don't think for a second that it's a military-focused anything. That's where we came from, but that doesn't necessarily mean where we are today. It certainly informed us and made us who we are. And another thing, uh, I'm coining a phrase, Gen AA. So y'all got to start repeating Gen AA because they're already here. Gen Z, they're in the workforce already. Yes. Gen AA is being born and going to school already. And so the clock is ticking. One of the things you mentioned yesterday when we were chatting in today, you mentioned it also 
Culture versus climate. Explain that nuance, and I know it's an important nuance, so explain that for us if you would. The common denominator in building cultures is that people are the same. We all want to be valued. We all want to find purpose. So when we talk about cultures, you know, those assumptions, values, belief, how we how we believe in the organization, you know, how the organization, how people behave, you know, and, and it's a top-down approach. So I like to say that, you know, difference between in a mental graphic culture and climate, you can have a, a great organizational culture with a lot of subclimates in the organization that are not that great, right? Or you can have it in reverse. So I like to say, you know, as a leader, you know, for me, thinking back on my time in the military, even the time now as a business owner, I focus on things differently. I felt like sometimes I was a leader who focused on the climate, which was short-term wins and changing things not for the long-term fabric of the organization more than I should have. And I always had this story that I, t- I talk about this popcorn machine that we had at Air University that someone went in, you know, it's a long story, but a long story short, we had a very big culture issue in a building with, with, with about 400 people where we couldn't even find 40 people to even stand in the hallway together for award presentation. And it was a young, young guy who was a millennial who one day went and bought a popcorn machine. And in the flying community in the Air Force, there's a famous, you know, everyone eats jalapeno popcorn. They put they get a popcorn machine, they put jalapenos in it, and they, they ruin the popcorn machine forever. So, uh, <laughs> so it's just a it's, a it's a flying culture in the Air Force. So this young major who was a pilot, he went and got a popcorn machine, and he started popping popcorn every day at three o'clock. And he did that for a couple of weeks, and we start seeing people, and the smell of jalapeno in your hallways is something you will never forget. <laughs> so people started coming out, and you know, people started gathering around this, this popcorn machine, and after a while, you know, it became a staple. I remember being there my first year. We had a potluck for Halloween. I'm sorry, for Thanksgiving, and we had about 30 people show up to this potluck, and this is a four-story building, and it was just not good. He did this popcorn thing. So he was changing the climate of the organization, right? He was changing people's attitudes. He was changing he, you know, their, their attitudes about the organization, their assumptions about the organization. It was a bottom-up driven initiative. And over about three months, we had people, you know, if, if the major was not in, we had to actually have a roster of who can pop popcorn because if you missed a day, <laughs> people got upset that this popcorn wasn't being popped. So we had to like have fail-safes on the popcorn. So fast forward to Thanksgiving the following year, we had a Thanksgiving potluck and we didn't have enough chairs. We had a couple of hundred people at this potluck. So I tell people, you know, you know, culture is one of those long things that you have to you know, work on and work on and work on and work on. But your climate can change given the day. Right. I can give Lucas the day off tomorrow and say, Lucas, go ahead and have the rest of the week off. And Lucas is going to be very happy about that. But if Lucas worked in a culture that didn't appreciate him, didn't he didn't find value and purpose in, that climate may change for those three days of, of Lucas and his team that we gave the day off. But when he shows back up to work on Monday, he's coming back to the same culture. Wow, that's an amazing insight. Yeah. You remind me of the different kinds of power when you tell that story. And I, I don't want to have a senior moment here, but depending on whose list you read, there is position power, expert power, relation power. And then two of them are reward power and uh, coercive power. And, you know, rewarding with a day off or coercing with uh, some form of punishment, mild or significant, is climate driven in your definition. And that's a really important distinction. We all want to be referent 
power leaders. People follow us because they want to, and they believe in our mission. They believe in our vision. And it sounds like that's how you differentiate what happens in a climate versus a culture. It's a long-term, we're all rowing in the same direction, not just a day, feel good for a day. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So Lucas, you're the, the the Gen Z or the millennial in the room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're closest to the Gen Zs and the Gen AA's. We hear a lot about climate and how important it is in the 21st century. So talk to us about that from your perspective and Todd and I'll see how that would resonate with us. What you said about, you know, that story, the popcorn story, it's like, you know, you can bring donuts to work and improve things and, and like little incremental things. And I guess I always come back to just like raising my son and like remembering being a kid, but it's like, you know, that's kind of how I try to influence Declan day to day. It's like, and he's like two and a half now. What are we going to reward him? Are we going to say good job? You know, he really likes to be praised. So that tends (laughs) to work more than, you know, punishing him. So those like little things over time, but then one day he's going to be a teenager and that's where the, (laughs) I think maybe that's where the culture comes in more, you know, it's not going to be easy to say, oh, you can get a cookie tomorrow at dinner if you do this. It's going to be more like, do I have that referent power that JR is talking about? Am I able to influence him without just the law, you know? So that's what I kind of think about. I give a, another example at a lot of the speeches that I give or, or different workshop openings and, and what you're talking about that I really I travel quite a bit, like you know, Jar. I know you. We're always somewhere, right? And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and I got this thing. I started a couple of years ago that every time I go to a city, I always find a Chick Fil A, whether I'm going to eat at a Chick Fil A or not. I just want to see what the drive-through looks like. If I see the sign, I always like go past it. And I said, you know, the thing when we talk about what Lucas was just referring to is it was what really millennials, you know, and Gen Zs, and probably talking about the Gen Double As are really, you know, going to be about is how do you make me feel? You know, how do you how do you make me feel is actually a strategic line of effort and in, in probably business that should be. How do you make me feel? It should be a leadership task. And I look at Chick-fil-A and I say, why is Chick-fil-A so popular? You know. You know, if we can talk about brands, I say they have tapped into something I call, you know, exceptional versus average that we as humans and something that even for me, I was raised with hard nose, you know, what grinding, you know, way by parents and grandparents. You work hard and and you don't really care what anybody says to you at work. You work there for 35 years. You get your gold watch and you move on with your life. You pay your bills every Friday and no, you know, you don't you I would never imagine being a kid at 14 years old coming home. When I had my first job saying that my manager treated me a certain kind of way, you know, like my manager yelled at me or my manager doesn't like me. I, that wouldn't have mattered in my household. But, you know, <laughs> today with a 20 and 25 year old, that matters to me. You know, I have a 25 yeah. year old who's an accountant and she's one of those part of that, you know, 30, 40 million folks who move. She's part of that, that 50 percent of millennials who moved in the Great Resignation she quit her job and got another accounting job and didn't care what the new pay was going to be based on the fact that this job didn't treat her a certain kind of way versus this job that she's going to. That's the only common denominator of why she left her job. It wasn't even the money. So I really think when we talk about exceptional versus average, that we as humans have, have really gotten used to average. And it's why we accept or celebrate when we go to a restaurant and a waiter or a waitress or a server gives us exceptional service, we celebrate it the whole way home. We overtip and we celebrate it. 
because it's like in our mind, it's like we just got something that we are not used to. And Chick-fil-A has tapped into this thing where if we can be consistent and above average or exceptional, then people will continue to come back because 90% of our competitors are only going to give you average or below average. So it's almost like a human psychological thing that really draws us there. It's not the food. It's, It's this thing that makes us feel a certain type of way. And that's what's going to draw the next talent, the great shift in talent for the next 20 years. Now, you're absolutely spot on. And that's a perfect analogy of exactly what we're talking about in building a coaching culture are you going to be able to re- attract that world-class talent and in an environment where you can't hire anyone, you know, Lucas, you're a recruiter, Todd, you're growing your business. Finding talented people is challenging to say the least. They have people waiting in line to work there, right? They get to select, <laughs> down select. And so that's the, the beauty of building that kind of culture. It's not insignificant. I was listening to, to someone say, you're asking me a question about emotion and culture, and I just can't understand what you're talking about. It's irrelevant to me. Well, that's a 20th century culture. For me, culture is the story that you tell yourself about the company, the story that your team tells, and even more importantly, the story the world tells about you. Do we want to work there? Do they uh, respect me? Do they help me? weave my personal and professional life together. You know, it's no accident that Lucas, when we ask him for an example, talks about his child, Mm -hmm. talks about his home, talks about his wife. Mm -hmm. For the 21st century, the personal and the professional are so interwoven as to make them inseparable. Absolutely. And if you want to hire somebody, you better be talking about that intersection. Mm -hmm. And you better be encouraging achievement in both. Mm -hmm. Or you're going to have a long line uh, out the door and you're not going to be able to get anybody to come in the door. Totally agree. I mean, and, and, and you can look at it from the stats. You can look at it from the data. You can also just ask Lucas or ask people in the millennial you know, workforce. You can ask the Gen Zers. I, like I, I live with the most, uh, she's had, you know, she came back from college and she's going, living at home for a year to go you know, during the pandemic. But I live with one of the most opinionated millennials that I've ever met. My, my, you know? mm-hmm. And you know, it's awesome because she's the subject of any research that I do. And if you want to know what they think, you just ask and they'll tell you. And uh, and, and that's a great point, Jerry. And I didn't notice, I noticed after you said it, it really kind of brought home the, the conversations I have. Most most of my conversation, most most of the day is really with people in the millennial millennial generation. And, and they always talk about what Lucas is talking about. They're talking about going skiing. They're talking about the vacation they're saving for. They're talking about their kids. They're talking about things that are so interwoven with the career path. It's like, it's all one. And it's a win-win. So we're not giving anything up by focusing on the personal and professional. There are fewer distractions. You're attracting people. They're excited to come to work. They're not running away. You're nurturing and supporting and encouraging all aspects of their life. So... I think that's the one of the secrets, and that's why we're focused there. And that's why you're doing the work that you're doing in the resiliency building. If you think in your head for a minute who our listeners are, they're, they're CEOs like you. They could be starting up. They could be running a Fortune 500 company. And so you, you think about culture every day. You, it's your profession. What advice would you offer 
either somebody in your shoes who's just getting started or someone who's running a complex inter- international business about how to get started, how to sustain this world-class culture? Ooh, that's a big question. <laughs> so I would say it, it, it starts, you know, it can, it can sound like a big question and it's, a, and it's no doubt a challenging question. If it wasn't challenging, then companies of all sizes won't be having the issues they're having today. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, you have to have the willingness to change. And you're talking about something as big as a coaching culture. Most people think that now that is first and foremost going to be time consuming. That's the first thing I always get like, hey, this is time consuming. This is going to take away from our production or this is going to take away from the bottom line of what we need to do to produce our thing. And I said, you know, I think you should take a step back and go, do you want to have a 40% retention rate in your employee, which is absolutely going to take away from your production, your growth, your sustainability, your competitive edge, or would you like to retain at least 80% of your, and grow within, grow a value-based system within where people feel valued the day they show up to your job, all the way till they go home and wake up the next morning and stay. What I would tell you is that the investment into a coaching culture, uh, investment into a culture of purpose, investment into a culture period that's going to make people feel valued, if your worry is that it's going to lead to less profits, I will tell you it would lead to more profits. If your worry is that it's going to be time consuming, it may be time consuming, but again, it's going to lead to a better sustainable organization, a better competitive organization in the marketplace. You're going to have to recruit less because just like any organization with a great culture, they don't have to recruit. They have a line at the door of people who want to work there. And, and your best recruiters are the people who come and show up to your job every day. So I would tell someone who is starting out, build your team and your circle on folks who are going you know, are going in the same direction, people who are value-based people, you know, because you can hire anyone and teach a skill to them, but it's hard to, uh, to hire someone and teach them to be a great human being and a great leader. You know, those things are a little bit more difficult, but they're not, they're not unachievable. You can actually teach someone that, hey, empathy is a superpower. Let's tap into what you can do to be more in tune with the people that you are leading. But I would say, don't look for a skill force, look for a a force of human beings who can connect with people first, and then look at the skills. You'll be better served in the future as you're building your team. Those who are existing businesses, doesn't matter if you're a million dollar business or or, or an $800 billion business, it doesn't matter. Investing in your workforce from day one and continuous investment will keep you competitive. And I keep using that word competitive over and over because the competitive edge of business in this century and going forward will be your workforce. And how do you build and maintain? So there's three things I tell leaders in the workforce. I said, you have to be able to attract, recruit, and retain a workforce. So if you focus in just on retain retention of your workforce, you're missing the attraction piece and you're missing the recruiting piece. So you have to be able to attract, recruit, and retain a workforce. And you have to be looking way to the left of the workforce that you're going to need in 20 years. Something I tell military leaders today, because you know some, there are some recruiting challenges in the United States military right now. And I was in a group of leaders just a couple of weeks ago, and I said, does anyone know or anyone has had a conversation with an eighth grader lately? And they were like, what do you mean? I'm like, because just you know, think about it. An eighth grader today has had two and a half years in COVID. In in two years, they're going to enter the workforce for the first time with their first jobs. Four and a half years after watching their parents, their grandparents, watching the world change the entire mechanism of work. 
Now they're entering a workforce in a different mindset. Two years after that, you are now authorized to recruit them for the United States military. Six and a half years after they have seen the world change. Do you know what methods today that you will need in six years to attract them, to recruit them? Don't even think about retaining them yet because you got to get them in the door. And that's the same for any industry. If we know what tech is gone in 10 years, are we talking to eighth graders today? Are we understanding the battlefield that we're going to have for talent? I live in a DMV area and it's not as bad here, but some, some places I go, I can visibly see that the restaurant has half of the empty chairs in the restaurant, but there's a line out of the door because I have to wait. Oh, every 40, day, yeah, every day. I got to wait 45 minutes to get, to get seated because they don't have a workforce. Mm-hmm. We don't have a shortage of adults in America to work. They have a shortage of a work. But going back to our, our point earlier, you know who doesn't have a shortage of workforce? People with strong cultures. People with strong cultures. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that, that says it all. <laughs> all three of us are certified coaches. Some of us newer to the skill set than others. Let's talk a little bit about what that means to lead from a place of coaching leadership. And Lucas, I'll let you start first, and then Todd, and then I'll go last. I'm the professor. I want to go last. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess, um, you know, we've been talking about the holistic person, you know, your, your family, your goals, your personal goals, your professional goals. And you kind of think about like the, the company itself, like you have an influence on how people interact with society day to day. Like, do you have that good interaction at Chick-fil-A just as a customer? Do you have that good interaction when you go to work and you feel great when you come home and everything? So I guess just thinking about the influences that you have as an organization, as a company, and I guess coaching is that on a more micro level, like how do I interact with the stranger I meet today? How do I interact with somebody that I work with every day, but I don't have a personal relationship with? And how do I make them feel comfortable? You kind of hear the negative personality sometimes say like, oh, you know, I I tell it like it is. Um, Mm -hmm. I tell the truth and I don't care how people feel. And they wear that as a badge of honor. And like, it's not actually the best way to go about the world because everybody interprets things differently. So how do I tailor the way I'm speaking to mm. Todd and, and my dad and everybody? So I guess that's my <laughs> explanation. When I first came to you know the official coaching journey last year, I, the first thing I realized, I was doing a lot more mentoring than actual coaching. And, and I saw that powerful change once, you know, a little bit more tools in my toolbox were, were placed there. I saw a powerful change in, in leaders who can take all of those tools, because there's a lot of tools in there, you know, but who can take that coaching mentality and really connect. There's a deeper connection on another level. The biggest thing of leaders is to allow people to be their true self, to allow people to come up with their own powerful aha moments. The light bulbs came on. I think if it's anything, the most powerful thing I think in coaching, the most powerful thing in leadership to leaders who take on a coaching culture, a coaching mentality is helping people through challenges, whether it be professional, personally or whatever, and having them get that moment of fulfillment when they are, are through that barrier on their own, essentially, when they feel like they were a part of it and they weren't told to do it. They weren't instructed to do it. They weren't given a checklist to do it. 
they were just guided to do it. And the guide was essentially, here you go. What do you think? And I think when, when you see folks come back after some months and get through some really tough challenges through that, I think it's powerful. And any leader, again, who takes on that challenge is going to have a better innovative culture. They're going to have people who are really uh, sparked to come up with their own ideas, their own solutions. They're going to have people who felt invested in. They're going to feel more connected to you. And ultimately, that cape of empathy that I always talk about, that superpower of empathy, of understanding from someone else's perspective, listening and feeling, that's all coaching. The three phases of empathy is all coaching. So one of the things we talk about is our house of leadership. That's a framework that we use here at Flatter just as a tool to carry us through thinking about what kind of leader do we want to be and helping others build their houses of leadership through our coaching. One of the cool things about the house of leadership and one of the cool things about a coaching style of leadership is you let everyone build their house and you respect that house. And that, of course, if we're going to work together, there are some things we have to agree on. And so those become the principles. They become the foundation of our culture whether we're working at work together, whether we're working on a soccer team together, we go to the same church. We have to agree. There's a few things that we agree we have in common. We have the vision of the organization, perhaps, some principles that we share. Like all three of us, we're coaches, so we share that. But a coaching style of leadership helps people identify and grow their own house, build their own house, and then most importantly, they respect that house and they respect their contributions. They respect their diversity. The fact that you know, everybody I know in this world who's really, really good at something is a bit of a freak in some area of their life. <laughs> and just letting that roll, man, it's not important <laughs> yeah. because they, you get the excellence and then you get the eccentricity. So, <laughs> True statement. <laughs> Me included. I'm right at the top of that list, and Lucas will attest to all of that. So one of the requirements of being a distinguished guest on this podcast is you have to give up one of your secrets. One of your secrets of success, and I think you've, you've hinted at it or maybe more than hinted at it, but what would you tell the listeners will, will break you out of the pack and make you a success in the 21st century? I probably got a hint at a few things, but I would tell you my number one thing that I tell folks and it's, it's persistence. I believe truly that there's no such thing as a closed door. There's, you know, there's always a way to end the door. There's always a crack. There's always an unlocked door. Persistence for me is the secret in every aspect, in every aspect of gaining success. And when people, when I say persistence, I mean persistence on the very, very, very small things. Mm. So all the way from the small things to the large things, you have to be persistent at it. When I started this business, like in, like any business owner, I had absolutely um, no idea <laughs> what I was doing. I, you know, I'm coming out of the military and, and I made a lot of mistakes, but those mistakes were never looked at as, to me personally, as, as failures. They were like, what did I do? Okay, persistent, persistent, persistent. If there was a secret, just never give up. Be persistent about everything you do and surround yourself with people. Surround yourself with people of like values. That's been my recipe for success from day one, from 18 years old all the way to now, is that I always surrounded myself around the right people and I always was persistent at everything. And if I can, I would take me another three hours on this podcast to tell you all of the no's, <laughs> all of the things that people told me I could never do, 
all of the times that people stared at me in the face and told me that will not happen. I can fill a 200 page book on that. And for some reason, something that's really, really rooted in my DNA that, you know, those things don't really resonate with me. So, you know, I think they feel me a part of me when someone challenges me or I feel challenged or I feel like something is, 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 uh, going to give me any difficulty, I push harder. And, and, and it's just persistence. And, and I think that's a common, another common thread amongst successful folks or anyone who's pursuing success of any level. Because another thing I, is success is relative. Success doesn't mean that you have a billion dollars in the bank. You know, that's not, you know, that's not the only type of success. For me, success is achieving what I set myself out. The goal that I set out to achieve is success to me. And it doesn't matter how small it is. If I say I'm going to be a coach, no matter how schedule I am, uh, how my schedule is crazy, I'm going to I'm going to be a coach and I'm going to do it. If I said I'm going to open my own business because, you know, I'll, I'll end with this. I mean, I retired from the military in a, in a very senior position and a unique position where it's the only senior enlisted position that, yeah, you carry that senior enlisted title, but you're also a part of a university system which you get to actually be, you know, someone who gets to be throughout all of the major universities throughout the country and, 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 and really be a part of a network that you can really monetize when you step out of the gate into some really good jobs. And I turned every bit of that down mm. to bet on myself because I was persistent to go, I'm going to bet on myself with a laptop in 400 bucks. And that's what I did. And the 400 bucks was to start an LLC. And, and I told, and I looked at my wife and I, and I told her, I said, Hey, give me two years to either make this great or it's not going to be so great. <laughs> and, and, you know, to be honest, my two years is one March. Wow. It's in two weeks. Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> so what are you going to do next then? I'm just kidding. <laughs> So let me let me let you ask you to drill down on that because you kind of glossed over, in my humble opinion, a very powerful superpower, and a professor would call it self-efficacy. Mm-hmm. And you have this vision in your mind that I'm just going to make this happen, and the world be damned, I'm going to make this happen. Where does that come from? Because we all want some of that. We all want some of that. So, you know, to be honest, it's a powerful question, right? So where does that come from? To be totally transparent with you and your audience, it comes from trauma. And I'm a very transparent person, um, very transparent. It comes, I don't have a choice but to be transparent. I wrote a book and told everything. I told my whole life story. (laughs) So it's it's out there. So uh, it's trauma for me. And, 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 you know, I grew up in a very rural, small town in South Carolina. For me, you know, I'm the I'm the youngest of four kids, but I grew up, you know, with my life really kind of being co- very complex. I didn't, you know, I had a, a on and off relationship with my dad, and 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 I had a kind of a loose kind of upbringing when my mom worked like three jobs. She was, you know, so I was kind of raised by you know sister, grandmother, kind of, you know, I was that only kind of kid, kind of bounced around. And to be honest with you, there was a lot of things, you know, because I I felt like I never belonged anywhere growing up. I felt like I never belonged to anyone. And I was just because my three siblings were from my mom's previous marriage. I was this kind of outsider kid and teenagers being teenagers, you know, they they treated me that way. 
it was one of those things where, you know, it, can I say it was mental and physical abuse? I, w- I would say yes to by its definition. But I always grew up feeling less than. And to be honest with you, so I, I told you I was the head of Air Force education when I retired, right? Taught college for the last 17 years and all of these things. But what people don't, you know, what I tell you is that persistence came from, I graduated from high school with a 2.0 GPA. I failed, <laughs> I failed the fourth grade. I failed the ninth grade. And I'm actually a high school dropout. Mm. My French teacher brought me back to high school and begged me to come back to high school after I dropped out and said, I already talked to all your teachers. We'll graduate you as long as you come back. Wow. And I met an Air Force recruiter who worked with me and allowed me to come into the Air Force. So, you know, it was that persistence of really, to be honest with you, at 18 years old, I had no self-esteem, no self anything. And I felt like I was everything that anybody ever told me I was. And I caught a spark at 19 years old after I had a serious dip in resiliency. I actually felt the lowest point in my life at 19 years old. And I actually contemplated taking my own life. And there was a man who jumped in and really gave me the first indication of what a male role model really looks like. And he took me to Kobar Tower, Saudi Arabia with him in the 90s. And he really kind of instilled in me some principles of this self-reliance on myself being persistent about your goals. What are your goals? And no one in my life has ever asked me that before. What do you want? And that's the, really the first time I thought about when I when I was you know in your course about coaching, I was thinking about this senior master sergeant, first sergeant, how we ate Chinese rice at a Chinese restaurant over 12 times while we, he came and picked me up all the time. We sat there for hours. And I remember the pivotal question he asked me toward the end of three months together. And he said, what do you want, Airman Simmons? What do you want out of your life? Give me, give me three things you want to do. And I said, I want to stay in the Air Force. I want to see the world, you know, and I just want to be good at something. And he literally showed me how to get out of Alabama, you know, because that's where I was stationed. And I went overseas and he wrote on a napkin. He wrote eight overseas bases down on a napkin. And he told me, this is what you need to know. So I'm not, I'm not giving anybody say, you said you wish you want. These are the places that I visited. I have great experiences here. You know, for 17 years, I chased that napkin. I stayed overseas for 17 consecutive years, going to every location that he put on that napkin to a man I only spoke to for three months. And I never spoke to him again since 1996. Mm. So we talk about what an impact that has you can have on people. So where does that come from? It came from trauma. And then it came from a place of turning trauma into power. Mm. And the day I turned trauma into power, I was unstoppable. And I say, I don't say it in an arrogant way, but I really developed this mindset where a kid who couldn't graduate high school with a 2.0, who really is horrible at math, you know, by the time I hit seven years in the military, I was teaching my first college class. You know, by the time I was at E6, I had my first master's degree. So I was very relentless on anything that I did. They told me that I was an E6 in the Air Force, and I'll never, ever, ever have an opportunity to go to the FBI Academy because the Air Force only allows two people to go to the FBI Academy every year, and it's going to be an officer every time. (laughs) And I was the first E6 and the only E6 in the history of the Air Force 40 years of going to the FBI Academy to this day ever selected because they challenged me that day and said I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, yes, sir. Roger that. And then eight, eight months later, I was in the FBI Academy. Yeah. Incredible. So that persistence and that it comes from trauma. But and I tell everybody out there because it was a long road. I've been in mental health um, therapy and different things. But 
I personally found trauma to now become my superpower. How do I turn yeah, that into yeah. a, cause it can be unhealthy too. Cause it been, it's, you know, it can be a little bit unhealthy and be a workaholic and be a person who really is, is really chasing, chasing, chasing. But I think I found a balance in my forties where I have fun with it. I do chase my goals, but I have fun with it. Yeah, that's powerful stuff. So thank you for that. And, you know, ironically, or maybe not, one of the ways to build a powerful culture is to show vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And so thank you for that. It takes a lot of courage to show that kind of vulnerability. And for our listeners, your story is unique but common. Mm -hmm. Trauma turns a lot of people into powerful, powerful people. And I'm going to steal your phrase, so you better copyright it right now. <laughs> I turned my trauma into power. That is such a beautiful phrase. And I hope our listeners heard that because they can turn their trauma into power just like you did. Well, that concludes this episode of Building a Coaching Culture. I truly hope that this episode was helpful to you. If it was, be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Maybe stop and give us a rating or review and share this podcast with someone who might find it helpful as well. Thanks again and we'll see you next time. <laughs>